0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to mystory at toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. Well, it is really good to be back. Uh, Our family was gone for the last two Sundays, and we were out of town on vacation and just had a Really great time away. I know several of you have said they. We were praying for you while you were gone, and, and really appreciate that. And, and honestly, in, in some neat ways, could feel your prayers. and So thanks to that Pastor Bill did a great job the last two weeks, didn't he? Just a good word, and uh, um, he's not here today, but I'll pass that along to him. And uh, and and we're, it was a great great time. We were at a uh, in South Florida on the ocean uh, for the last week or so, and um, oftentimes when we when we when we go on vacation, we wanna go somewhere different from where you're from, right? That's just kind of the idea, you're going there. And then one of the nice things about being from Toledo is there's a lot of places that are different. And uh, so, so we were there and just had a really nice time. And, and um, when, I, when I go someplace like that, I don't wanna just go and, and miss it. Like I wanna make the most of it. I don't wanna just, just go and, and fail to really have a good encounter with a time like that. And so I find whether subconsciously or whatever, I've got these things that like run through my mind the whole time that I was gone. One of the things is this, when you, when you stand there, and, and you've done this, have you ever been someplace that, that's just different or beautiful in some way? And I think there's, there's places in our life every day that we should give God glory, and we have so many beautiful things around here, but when you're standing there on the, the shore of the Atlantic Ocean, and it looks a little different than the Maumee River, right? You, you, just, you just kinda go, just kinda go, wow. I don't wanna take this for granted. I don't want to just miss this, this moment. And the other thing that I, that I really have to do and keep in my mind the whole time is that I've got to kind of prepare myself for what I'm about to experience. Here's like a, a good, for instance, for this. For whatever reason, my family all goes out in the sun and they emerge just bronze and beautiful, right? <laughs> I go out in the sun and I emerge all red and lobster-like. I don't know if it's heredity or what it is, I don't know, Mom, if it's something, but I have to, before I go out there, I've got to make sure that I'm prepared and I protect myself. I put on like SPF 40,000 or something, you know, to make sure that I'm not just gonna fry because I want to make the most of this. I don't want to miss it. And also, I find myself, I don't want to just sit around. If I'm there and there's things for me to experience, I want to get out of the room and I want to do something. I want to go see what's there. Because if, if I don't take advantage of these moments, then they'll just be empty and I'll have missed out. I don't want these empty encounters. I'm going to do whatever it's going to take to make the most of what I've come face to face with. The passage of scripture we're going to look at today is the story of a people who came face to face with Jesus and yet they failed to make the most of it. In the process, they missed out on allowing the, the king of all the earth to change their lives. So take your Bibles with me if you would please and turn to Luke chapter four. We're gonna be in Luke chapter four today. Um, it's the passage of scripture that we saw in that video. We're gonna look at, and here's kind of a spoiler alert, some people who did not make the most of an encounter with Jesus. Here's what we read, Luke chapter four beginning with verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Now you know we have four gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they all give us the story of Jesus from a slightly different perspective. And although Matthew and John were actually there and Mark largely we believe received his information from the apostle Peter, Luke was not there. He, he most likely wasn't even in Israel in the time when all this was happening. He was more of a historian. And he went and he interviewed people and he did research and he tried to find out what happened in the life of Jesus. When we get to this story in the Gospel of Luke, it's kind of a hinge for the Gospel. It's a a, a transition point in Luke's biography of Jesus. He's told us about his birth. He's told us about his his baptism and and his temptation, his preparation for ministry. Now when we get to this passage in Luke chapter 14, he begins to tell us who Jesus really is and shows us the power of his ministry in this part of the book in particular in the area of of Galilee that we'll read about. And so this is an important passage of scripture. It says that Jesus went back to Galilee. Now Galilee was the region where Jesus was from. It's an area uh, that's a beautiful mountainous area mostly along the Sea of Galilee and it's a collection of towns and cities that were there. Jesus started his ministry there. It's where he was from and as he's gone back there his ministry is having an impact. Every community would have a house of worship. It would be their synagogue. You might call it their church if you would. And on a Sabbath day, Guests would come and if there was a visiting rabbi, they would recognize that person and Jesus was beginning to be recognized as a a rabbi and they would possibly give them the opportunity to speak. So Jesus is going from town to town. He's speaking in these places. People are amazed at what he says. They're praising him for who he is and for what he says. Miraculous things are happening and this is what we see in these first few verses. Let's go to verse 16 and watch what happens next. Jesus went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Then on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. So in this particular instance, Jesus isn't just in Galilee, he's actually in Nazareth. It's not that he's just in Ohio, he's in Toledo. He's in his hometown. He had been born in Bethlehem, but if you remember, Nazareth was where Joseph and Mary were from. It's where his parents were known. It's where he would have grown up and where people would have remembered him. Nazareth was not a very big place. Some scholars would estimate that the population of Nazareth at the time of Christ could possibly have been as low as 150 to 200 people. Most likely it was closer to like 1,500 or 2,000 but it was, it was no more than 2,000 people. It was a small community. In that small community, do you think people knew who Jesus was? I grew up in a, in a little town called Southington, Ohio. Southington Township over in Northeast Ohio. I think, I think if I remember right, the population when I was growing up was, was 1,700 people or less. So I know what it's like to be in a small town. My dad, was, my dad was a publicly elected official. He was the township clerk of Southington, Ohio. Thank you very much, right? So people knew people. They knew each other. Everybody knew everybody's business. You knew people's family. You went to school together. People knew you. This was the story with Jesus. People knew him. He's walking back to his hometown. These are people that he was familiar with. And it was his custom to go to the church, to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And the practice in the synagogue would have looked something like this. And this is really important to understand what's happening here People would come, and they would come to pray, and they would come to be taught and to learn from the law, and at some point, there was an attendant in the synagogue. The attendant was kind of the guy that was in charge of all the details, and he would keep the scrolls, and the scrolls would be kept in a special cabinet or box. They didn't have scriptures in their hands back then like we do, and they certainly didn't have an app on the phones they didn't have. What they had were the scrolls that would belong to the synagogue. And so when it came time to read the scripture, the attendant would take one of these scrolls and would hand it to the person who was selected to read for that day. For that particular day, it was Jesus, for whatever reason. And they give him the scroll. Now the attendant most likely chose that scroll from Isaiah, hands it to Jesus, and when that happens, the person who is reading, everyone is sitting, the person who is reading will stand and read the scripture, the Old Testament scripture from the scroll. When they're done reading it, they would roll the scroll back up, hand it to the attendant, and then the person who was going to teach the people that day would sit to teach. They would stand to read the scripture, then they would sit. When they would sit, they would sit in what was called Moses' seat, or the seat of Moses. It was called that because when that person sat in that seat, they were taking the place of Moses to bring the law, to bring the word of God to God's people. So this was a pretty important deal. You would sit in Moses' seat in a place of authority, in a place where you would be the one that was looked to to communicate the truth from God. So here's what we see. Jesus goes into the synagogue. The attendant takes the roll. He hands it to Jesus. Jesus unrolls the scroll, and here's what we see. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Jesus reads this passage. And we don't know if he chose it. We don't know if it was the assigned reading for the day. But I can tell you this. When, when we read this, you'll see this. It was no mistake or random chance that this person read this passage on this day in that place. Jesus reads from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The people that heard that would have been very familiar with that passage. It was from Isaiah 61, and Isaiah wrote it to the people of God regarding the exile that they experienced in Babylon, and he was saying, someone will come and will set you free. There will be a deliverer. Someone will come and bring life to places where there is death and darkness. This is a pretty cool prophetic promise, and they knew that promise, and they were holding on to it. They were waiting for someone to come and rescue them. They were under the oppression of the Roman government, financially, politically, spiritually. It was, in many ways, a pretty dark time in the nation of Israel, and they were holding out that someone was going to come empowered by the Spirit of the Lord, and this is a, a powerful passage, and, and we could take time and kind of unpack the whole thing. What does each phrase mean? Why is it so important? But understand this. When you read it, think of the words that are there. Jesus says he sent to the poor, to the prisoner, to the blind, to the impressed, to bring the favor of God to people. We must understand this. Jesus is saying he is coming for those who are in the greatest need. Jesus is coming for those who are in the greatest need. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's an election that's gonna happen this year. Have you noticed that, right, it's political year? And as we do that, we're reminded over and over and over again of the needs, of the problems, of the challenges. We see it, we hear it over and over again. Understand this, this is why Jesus came. He came for those who are in the greatest need. And sometimes we look at our situation and we think of how low we are and how bad things are and how how poor we feel or how low we feel or how oppressed we feel. And understand this, when you are at your very lowest, you are exactly who Jesus came for. And then there's these times and I don't know if you do it consciously, but I think all of us at times have this thought that runs through our mind subconsciously. We see other people, and we have a tendency sometimes to go, we look at other people and go, oh, I'm, I'm better than them. I don't know that you'd ever vocalize it. But you have those different things based on whatever is, is in your own brain. But you look at other people, and you, I'm, I'm kind of superior to them in some reason. I'm better than them in some reason. And whenever you feel that, remember this, that whoever you think you're better than, that's exactly who Jesus came for. And we can't miss this because right now in so many ways we're looking for answers to national problems and national challenges. We're looking for someone to come and to change things. And Jesus said he came for those in greatest need. But understand what he says here. In an election year this is critical for us to know. National security and political stability have never been God's first priority. National security and political stability, they've never been his first priority. You know what his first priority has always been? The state of your heart. He came to change the human heart. That's what he's saying. So Jesus reads this job description to the people. And then watch what happens next. Verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. Remember what we just talked about? He didn't return to his seat. You know whose seat he was sitting in? Moses' seat. He's sitting in a place of authority. So here's what this means. He's read the scripture, rolled it up, hands it to the tenant, sits down, and when he sits down, he's about to say something. He's going to speak with God's authority. He's about to speak wisdom. He's about to tell the people what this passage of scripture should mean to them. Watch what happens. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. I gotta tell you, that's a pretty big deal because half of you never look at me on a Sunday morning. The (laughs) eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now we could read right past that passage, but watch what happens here. Takes the scroll, opens it, reads it, rolls it up, hands it back to the attendant. He has just read this powerful prophetic promise. He sits down in the place of authority and then he says, ta-da! I'm it. What you been waiting for? This prophetic promise? Your hopes? Today, friends, It is fulfilled right here in your hearing. That's a pretty big deal. It's an awesome thing. They're watching the fulfillment of their hopes happen right there in their hometown. Today, I am the fulfillment of the prophetic promise of hope, Jesus says. This is where we really need to pay attention to this story today. Because the people in Nazareth, who I think were probably good people, right? They weren't bad people for crying out loud, they're in church on Sunday, right? They showed up, they're sitting there, they're listening, they're there in church. They have the Messiah as the guest speaker that Sunday morning, and they miss it. They could have had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus, and instead, they just walk away with some very empty interaction. My, my concern is that when you and I have opportunities to have a face-to-face encounter with the one who came to bring us salvation in the time of our greatest need, that we would miss it. That our encounters with Jesus would just be empty. In the month of August, we're gonna wrap up the, the series that we've been doing on the life of Christ called More Than a Story. Next Sunday, we're gonna talk about the power that Jesus has to bring divine Healing, physical healing to our lives. If you're in need of a physical touch from God or you know someone who is, next week is a Sunday you do not want to miss. Then on the 14th, we're gonna talk about how God changes our lives. On the 21st, we're gonna talk about how, how God calms the storms in our lives, and on the 28th, we're gonna talk about how God brings deliverance to us through Jesus Christ and sets us free. Every one of those weeks, we are prayerfully looking at as an opportunity for someone to have a face-to-face encounter with Jesus that'll change their lives forever. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Here's my fear. My fear is that we'll just walk in and we'll walk out and that we'll miss it. That if we don't, if we don't watch our own hearts our opportunity to have an encounter with the king of the universe will end up just like it did for the folks in Nazareth. And so what I wanna look at for the next few minutes today are some dangers that we need to address if we're not going to just have an empty encounter with Jesus. These are things, their attitudes, their actions in our own hearts, that if we're not careful, they pose a danger to us. They, they can keep us from experiencing what God has for us, but if we will address these things, then we can be open to receiving everything that he has, not just in these next four weeks as we walk through looking at his life, but I'm talking about your every day. I want to share with you three dangers we need to look at. You're going to see this in the life of these people in Nazareth. Here's the first one. I call it the danger of familiarity. The danger of familiarity. Look at what we read here. So Jesus has just told them today, this prophetic promise is being fulfilled right here in Nazareth. And watch what happens. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked it's not that they weren't impressed, they were impressed, they were amazed. Listen to the words that this kid speaks. But you know what they immediately go back to? They immediately go back to, isn't that Joe's kid? I remember him. Instead of receiving what he had to say, they went right back to what they were familiar with. They categorized him the way that they'd always seen him. And I wanna caution you, the first step toward this danger of missing out on what God wants to do in your life is when you become too familiar with who God is and what he may wanna do. When we begin to assume something because we're familiar with it, we don't give it the attention or the effort that it deserves, and we can just park here for a minute. I think we do this all the time. We become familiar with things, then we begin to assume things about it, and when we begin to assume things, we miss out on the blessing or the benefit of those things. We think we know what it's all about. We do this with our jobs, we do it with our kids, we do it with our spouses, we do it with our church, and I wanna challenge you today, I think we do it with God. Familiarity leads to harmful assumptions. When we become too familiar with something, we begin to assume that we know everything about it, and that is just a harmful thing. We do it in this way, we say, oh, it's just my job. And then we miss out on the fact that it's an opportunity to be used by God and to be blessed by God. Ah, they're just my spouse. When we should view them as the one God has called us to serve and honor, ah, it's just just my kids. Instead of viewing them as a gift and responsibility from God. Ah, it's just another year of school, and we fail to see that this may be the chance that God is giving to us not only to be prepared but to make an eternal impact. Ah, eh, just the beginning of another week. But what if God had something else in store? When we begin to assume that we know too much because we're familiar with something, we limit what God can do. We limit what can happen in those relationships and oftentimes, as a result, it slows us down or it hinders us from the things that God has for us. Let me give it to you in this way. Maybe here's kind of a a little example that might help us. Let's say you're from Toledo. You know Toledo and you can get behind the wheel of your car and you can go anywhere you want because you're very familiar with this city. But however, you've been out of town for the last 12 months. For the last 12 months, you left Toledo, and now you're back in Toledo in the summer of 2016. And you get behind your car, not behind your car, that'd be dangerous, you get behind the wheel of your car, and you say to yourself, I can go wherever I want to go in the summer of 2016. That would be a dangerous assumption. Because it wouldn't take you long to get out on the highway when you would go, they did what to 475? (laughs) Airport, what's going on with Airport Highway? Why does everybody hate Reynolds Road, right? Wouldn't that happen? you would say, who made orange the color of Northwest Ohio officially? Because we've had all this construction. If you haven't been here and you roll back into town and you assume you're just going to go and do whatever you want to do, you are sadly mistaken. Amen? It's a dangerous assumption, but we do it all the time. We think we've got things figured out. We think we've got people figured out. We do this and it puts us in places where the reality is really quite different but we push it aside because we're so familiar with something. You've, you've heard the phrase maybe, familiarity breeds, familiarity breeds contempt. Really? Is it that we're familiar with something? Is that why we contempt it? Or is it because of what we've allowed ourselves to become familiar with? Actually, if you think about it, familiarity should, should breed relationship. It should breed closeness. It should breed intimacy. It should breed partnership. Maybe familiarity isn't the issue. Maybe it's what we've allowed ourselves to become familiar with. What we've settled for in relationships and in interaction. Maybe we've failed to put effort behind this. The real question is not so much the familiarity, but what we've allowed ourselves to become familiar with. Is it the sarcasm with your spouse? Or the disdain you have for your job? or the low expectations you carry of what God can do with your days. We do this all the time with God. We assume that we know what's going to happen when we walk into church. We assume that we know what God wants to do in our lives. We assume how other people will respond to him. Watch this. We may miss out on what God is doing when we assume we know it all. Jesus rolled in to that synagogue and said, today prophetic promise is fulfilled right here in front of you. And they said, oh look, it's Mary's cute little boy. When was the last time that you allowed God to do something new in your life? Not just rolling with what you're familiar with, what you assume he wants to do. When was the last time that you really took a, look, I think for many of us, and I would put myself in this position, I would say, look, I've been a follower of Jesus for a long time. You might even say, hey, I'm mature." in my faith, but when was the last time you were actually maturing? When was the last time you said, God, I want you to do something in my life to help me be more like you? This is a danger when we get familiar. Luke tells us this story in Luke chapter four. Mark and Matthew also give us details about this same encounter when Jesus goes back to the synagogue in Nazareth. Mark chapter six, Matthew chapter 13. Although they don't give the same details about what Jesus says, they give us a little bit of a unique perspective on the people. Look at this, Mark chapter six, verse one. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. Where'd this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? Watch this last line. And they took offense at him. They weren't just wondering. They weren't just asking rhetorical questions. They were actually put out. They took offense at him. There's this underlying sentiment that I feel when I read this passage that they're listening to Jesus. They're hearing what he's saying and all of a sudden they've gone from being just kind of tickled that he's back to saying who does he think he is? Do you hear that there? Isn't he that guy we know? I went to school with him. I grew up with his dad. Who does he think he is coming in here and saying these things. See, they were so certain that they knew what was right and was wrong. They were so familiar with Jesus and certain about their assumptions that when the time came for him to challenge them in some way, they immediately questioned his authority. Who does he think he is? Now, if I asked you who God was, you'd probably say, well, God is the creator of everything. And if I said, who's Jesus? You'd say, he's the son of God. He's the Lord of all. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you've made him Lord of your life. You might assume that you know it all, but you haven't given him first place. The certainty of our assumptions may lead us to question the authority of our God. When we're so certain that we know what we assume to be right, if God dared to challenge that in some way, we could find ourselves in a place where we question his very authority. I don't know that you'd ever do it consciously, but I'm gonna guess that there's been times in your life where things have come your way, and you say, God, who who do you think you are? More on that in just a minute. Uh, I, I wondered where that phrase came from, familiarity breeds contempt. I mean, I've always heard it, but I, I didn't know what the origin was. It actually comes from the end, from, a, from a, a summation of one of Aesop's fables. Do you remember Aesop? Remember reading about him in high school? He was the, the Greek guy, ancient times, who told the different stories, little parables, using different animals, do you remember those? This phrase actually comes from one of his parables called the, the fox and the lion. It's short, let me read it to you. When first the fox saw the lion, he was terribly frightened and ran away and hid himself in the wood. Next time, however, he came near the king of the beasts, he stopped at a safe distance and watched him pass by. The third time they came near one another, the fox went straight up to the lion and passed the time of day with him, asking him how his family were and when he should have the pleasure of seeing him again. Then turning his tail, the fox parted from the lion without much ceremony. The summation of that, the last line, familiarity breeds contempt. If you're a fox, do you think it's wise for you to get too comfortable around a lion? Probably not. He got so familiar, that he missed out on the greatness that was right in front of him. Now we're called a friend of God in scripture. In fact, scripture says that he is our God, we are his people. We're called to closeness closeness and intimacy with God. But the reality is we're in a dangerous place if we ever stop fearing him, right? And I think for many of us, we become so familiar with God and who he is and what he wants to do that we stop to realize his greatness and we just kinda part company without realizing exactly who he is. Look, you'll miss out on God's work in your life if you think you assume, if you know everything that he wants to do. Familiarity is a danger in the encounters that we have with Jesus. But the people in Nazareth take it about one step further. It's not just this danger of familiarity. Let me give you the second thing. It's what I would call the danger of disappointment. The danger of disappointment. Look at this, Luke chapter four, verse 23. Jesus has, has already spoken to them, right? He's, he's read this scripture from Isaiah. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me. I'm gonna preach good news to the poor and I'm gonna set the captives free and it's the year of the Lord's favor and he says all this to them. And when he reads all that, Luke 4, 23, Jesus then said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Couple things going on here. Jesus quotes the scripture and what always happens in a group like this is people start to get a little bit critical the older folks in the room they say he's too young to be saying that and the young folks in the room say well he's just way too old school the men say we don't like that because what he's saying is kind of touchy-feely and the women say we're uncomfortable with that all that prisoner and captive stuff we don't like that the republicans who were in the room thought that it was too much social justice (laughs) and the democrats with the whole year of the lord's favor they thought it was just making the rich richer do you see what's going on there it happens every, every place. People are critical. And they were disappointed with what Jesus was saying. You know why? Because they wanted a show. He said, you want to see the same things happen here that I did in Capernaum. We heard you put on a show over there. Jesus, we want you to do a show here. And he says, look, you're just gonna be disappointed because I didn't come here to do a show. In fact, the truth is, whenever Jesus did miracles, he didn't do miracles to put on a show. Do you know why he did miracles? He did miracles because he wanted people to see the power of God so that they could come close to him and experience life change for themselves because he was never interested in a show. He was always interested in the state of the human art. And now they're disappointed because they don't like what he's saying. It doesn't match up with what they wanted. They weren't happy because what was happening isn't what they wanted to happen. That's called disappointment. Have you ever had it? When God's will doesn't line up with our will, we must be mindful about how we deal with disappointment. Let me read that again, because I, th- I think it's it's pretty important here. When God's will doesn't line up with our will. Think about that for a minute. Have you ever had that happen? God, I, I know who you are and everything, but I think things would go a lot better if you would just do it my way. When God's will doesn't line up with our will, we must be mindful about how we deal with disappointment. We don't always get what we want. And what do we do when that happens? How do we let that disappointment affect us? Because how you deal with this danger of disappointment can make all the difference in how God is able to work in your life. Watch what happens next because Jesus keeps talking and things go from bad to worse. (laughs) Verse 24, truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Now Jesus has given these, these examples of how God works in people's lives. He's in a Jewish synagogue talking to Jewish people and he starts using examples of how God blessed the Gentiles. How do you think that went over? <laughs> Gentile sermon in a Jewish church, not so good. It's not what they wanted to hear. They were frustrated frustrated. They were disappointed, and they were going to respond in the way that their disappointment was driving them. Look, in our fallen world, you will be disappointed. You're going to deal with that. And I interact with people all the time who, when I start talking to them about their relationship between them and God, you know what always seems to come up? That disappointment. That place where something just wasn't right or somebody did them wrong, or they were treated in a certain way, and how we deal with that disappointment honestly can make all the difference in what God is able to do in our lives. Well, I don't like what the Bible says about this, so I'm not sure what I wanna do. I'm disappointed in what God says. I've lost some things, or I've lost someone, so I'm disappointed. Things didn't end up the way that I thought they would. There's too much change in my life. I'm not as important as I would like to be. That other person has what I wish I had. And all those things bring us to a point where we experience disappointment. You can't avoid it. It's gonna come your way. The key is, when you're disappointed, what do you do with it? Do you hang on to it? Do you let it identify who you are? Or do you, and this is my suggestion, or do you humbly bring it to Jesus? He's not surprised that you're disappointed. In fact, when you grieve, I believe he grieves with you. So take that to him. Confess it, express it, offer that to him. Make it a matter of prayer, and you'll probably have to do it on more than one occasion. You might have to force yourself to a place of surrender where you say, God, I give this disappointing situation to you, and then invite him to help you to have his perspective. I was just talking after this last service with a friend of mine who not too long ago lost his job And when he did, he called me up and he said, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Because this wasn't the plan. This isn't how I saw it all play out. About three or four months have gone by since then. And and in a couple of weeks, he starts his new job. And he said to me, I can't wait to start this new job. There's no way when I talked to you several months ago that I could have seen what God was doing. I thought my world was falling apart when God was actually putting it together. Okay, understand this. It's often in the places of our disappointment that God is able to bring us moments of divine appointment. Often it's in our places of disappointment that God is able to bring us moments of divine appointment where he can put us right where he wants wants us to be, where he can do just what he wants to do. But if we do not deal with our disappointment, our disappointment will deal with us. And when the people in Nazareth got disappointed with Jesus, both Mark and Matthew said they were offended. Anyone ever been offended? (laughs) If we do not deal with disappointment, it will grow into offense. If we do not deal with disappointment, what's it become? It becomes offense. How do we get offended when we're repeatedly disappointed? Isn't that the way it works? Well, she didn't treat me right, or he's not responsible, or they don't really care, or I guess I just don't matter. You ever had those words come out of your mouth or through your mind? And then what happens? You get offended. And you know what happens when I get offended? I respond in ways that I probably wish I hadn't. Look at how it affected the people in Nazareth. Watch this, verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Remember Jesus is preaching the Gentile sermon in the Jewish church? All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Now you know why I sneak out the side door when church is over. Right? No, no, that's not why. I'm, that's I shortcut around to the connection center. I'm in the connection center, but it does help. So, but look what happens to Jesus. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, a miracle happened. Somehow Jesus was able to escape this, but do you see what they're doing here? They don't like what he's saying. So they take him, they drive him out of the synagogue. They take him to the edge of the town. They lead him right up to the edge of this cliff. You know what they're going to do? They're going to push him off You know why they're going to push him off? Because when he lays down there at the bottom of that cliff, they're going to take big rocks and they're going to throw them down on top of him and they're going to kill him by stoning him. It's not a happy crowd. It was illegal for them to do that. Under Roman law, you could not execute another person in that way, it didn't matter who they were in their religious or in their Jewish community, only the Romans had the ability to do that. So for them to do this was actually gonna lead to greater trouble for them. They were responding in a way that was irresponsible and was unwise and could actually bring great harm to their lives and they were doing it because they were responding not out of wisdom but because out of where they were offended. And when you respond based on how you've been offended, you will always do something that is unwise. You know what Hebrews chapter 12 calls that? It calls it this root of bitterness. And it will defile us. It will poison us. We've got this area in our backyard, kinda got this like little fire pit, fire pit that I built and it's got this, these stones that are around it. And When we did it, we did everything right. You know, we put down the ground cover and we did all that kinda stuff. But somehow, over the course of the last year, we've got these little weeds that have grown up inside of there. You ever had that in your flower beds or gardens or whatever? And this stuff's nasty and it just grows and it just creeps and it just moves along. And I know what it's gonna look like because I haven't looked at it in a couple of weeks. I know what I'll be doing this afternoon. No, probably not. But I know what I need to do. I gotta go out there and pull those things out. You know why? Because if I don't, they're gonna overtake the whole thing. That's what bitterness does in your heart. That's what happens when you get offended by other people, and it's especially what happens when you let yourself get offended by God. When we focus on offenses, we drive the work of Jesus out of our lives. You wonder why God's maybe seeming distant or your encounters with him don't have much value? It might be because you're holding on to so much disappointment, maybe even to the point that you're at the border of being offended by him. Or you're holding on to all the other places where people did you wrong. And just like the people in Nazareth, you're literally taking the miraculous work that Jesus wants to do and you're driving it right out of your life. That's the danger of disappointment. So we've looked at the danger of familiarity, the danger of disappointment. Let me give you just a third one real quick today that you see in the life of these people in Nazareth. It's the danger of disbelief danger of disbelief, where you just get to a point and you just doubt what he really can do anyways. (laughs) Look, you will always have an empty encounter with Jesus if you don't have the faith to receive from him. If it's all just too familiar, if you're hindered by your disappointments, but even more, if you come without a faith to believe that God will do something, you'll find out that he probably can't. Matthew chapter 13, verse 58 Telling the same story. Here's how Matthew sums it up it says, And Jesus did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. They just didn't believe. It's just Joseph's kid, he's just offending us by what he's saying, we're not gonna put our trust in him, and as a result, he couldn't do the work that he'd come there to do. God wants to do something in your life, but if you don't believe that he can, he won't. Now I know this is cheesy, and I know this is overly simplistic to say, but I want you to see this, because this is the point of this passage, when we fail to believe, we fail to receive. If you don't believe that God can do it, he's not gonna do it. When you fail to believe, you fail to receive. And it could be that for some of us, the reason that we don't see God do more in our lives is because whether this is actively or passively, we just don't believe that he will. And let me pause for just a moment here because I think that when we have a conversation like this, we can can have a tendency to let this train get off the rails a little bit because I don't want you to hear what I did not say. I didn't say that if you don't have enough faith, then God can't do something. Have you you ever heard that? It's what's sometimes referred to as like a prosperity theology, or people will use phrases like name it or claim it, or it's just this, that if you believe enough, if you say the right things, if you, if you just have faith hard enough, then God has to do what you want him to do. Does that make sense? It's not what the Bible talks about. In fact, that's a gross misrepresentation of faith. What happens as a result, and I have this happen to me far more often than, than you would think or than I wish, is that people come up to me, And they say, Pastor, our family or our friends have told us that the reason my life is in this place is because I don't have enough faith or I haven't had faith enough. They've said that the reason I'm sick or not healed or poor, that my kids are struggling or that I have a frustrating job or that my marriage is struggling is because I don't have enough faith. That's a gross misrepresentation of faith. And I got to tell you, as a pastor, that's one of the things that makes me more frustrated and angry than anything else that I hear from people. Look, no one can tell you you don't have enough faith unless you're talking to God. Let Him work that out. You know where I think this gets messed up is we have this wrong idea about what faith is. Faith is worshipful trust, it's not wishful thinking. Faith is worshipful trust, it's not wishful thinking. Sometimes we think faith is this, that if I just believe enough, that if I just trust enough, that if I just put enough mental energy to, when you wish upon us, right? I mean, it's like, that's, that's what, we, we, we make it that, right? That's not what faith is. Faith isn't wishful thinking, it's worshipful trust. It's when you say, God, I worship you, I understand who you are, and I put my trust and my confidence in you. God, I'm gonna pray, and I know that your answer to this prayer might not be the same as the answer that I'm praying for. But even if it's not, I trust in you. That's faith. It doesn't mean you're guaranteed a quick miracle. It doesn't mean you get what you think you deserve. It means that you say, God, no matter what happens here, I put my trust in you. And until you get to that point, you're not gonna be able to receive everything that God has for you. Instead, the people in Nazareth said, ah, it's just Joe's kid and he's offending us. And so they wouldn't put their confidence in who he was. And the reality is they missed out. Mark chapter six, verse five. Jesus could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed. Look at that word. That's a pretty big deal. He was amazed at their lack of faith. There's only two places in the Gospels where it says that Jesus was ever amazed. He amazed a lot of people, but he was only amazed twice Once was here when he was amazed with their lack of faith. The others in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 8, verse 10, where he's amazed at the faith of the centurion. So it's faith that gets his attention when it's not there and when it is. It amazes him. He's fascinated by it. The reality is the state of our faith gets the attention of God. If you want to have an encounter with him, Then it begins by you putting your faith and your trust in him, not wishful thinking, but by saying, God, I surrender myself to you. I put my trust in you. I put my life in your hands. I put my confidence in you. I surrender myself beyond familiarity, beyond my disappointment. Lord, I believe in you, and I put my trust in you. There's so many other things that can cause us to question these things, realities of life and and challenges that we have, and at some point, I just have to be willing to say, God, I don't have all the answers here, but I put my confidence and my trust in you. Sometimes that's a little bit of a, of a trick for us. Here's, here's why, I think some of you, um, like me, you might also be a bit of a control freak. Can I see a show of hands? Okay, how many of you are liars? Can I see a show of hands? Okay, yeah, yeah. Here's, here's the deal. And the reality is, here's how it plays out. When I, when I see something that needs done, I, I typically feel like I know the, the right way to do it. And I'm typically always right, right? I mean, that's just, just the way it works. And then I also know that if it's gonna get done right, no one can do it but me. So I'm gonna take care of this because I'm the one who can handle this because I wanna be in control. Anyone else in therapy? Anyone else? Because you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? One form or another, we're all in that place. Wasn't too long ago, we were getting ready to take a, a little family trip. We were gonna be gone for a few days and, and, and I was packing up the, the van. I'm the, I'm the oldest and, and certainly the wisest in my family and so you know, the, the, it, always, it always falls on me to do the packing and I do the masterful packmanship in the back of the van and so we had all stuff there. Everybody's got a like, suitcase, a duff bag, whatever, you got a bunch of bags sitting around and so everything's kind of sitting out there and I'm, and I'm surveying the back of the van and I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm figuring out how this packing will go. And I know that my family will walk out of the house and they'll look and go, Chad, what an awesome job you've done. You are a packer among packers. Like, you know, I mean, that would just be the thing. So I'm standing and I'm looking and my son Evan, who's 15, is standing right there with me. And he looks at the stuff and he goes, Dad, what if you did this? Well, his plan was not my plan. And I just looked at him and went, ha. <laughs> And I went back to you know doing my thing, and I turned to do something, pick something up, and when I turned around, Evan had actually taken some things and was starting to put them in the back of the van. He apparently did not get the family memo that you don't do that. I am the packer. And I went, oh, that's not the right way. Wow, that was, stuff just kind of, that's not the right way. You all saw it. It's not the right way. And, and then I looked, and I went, that's, that's even better, like that's, that's great, yeah, that's, that's you, you are so much like your dad, aren't you? You're just, you're just a chip off the old block, the old apple didn't fall far from the tree, and it was this reminder that I love to be in control, but I don't always know the best way. I'm not always the one with the right answers. Now that's one thing when you're dealing with your teenage son, it's another thing when you gotta wrestle that through with a God that you can't see. Say, God, I don't have all the answers here. I think I do. But at this place, in this thing, this encounter that you and I are having here, because look, you're going to have an encounter with him one way or the other. He's right here. He's with us. And whether it's in church or whether it's first thing tomorrow morning or whether it's some encounter that's going to come and go and you're just going to totally miss it, I don't want it to be empty for you. I don't want you to be so familiar that you miss it. I don't want you to be so disappointed that you drive him away. And I don't want you to find yourself in a place where he can't work in your life because you haven't said, God, I believe in you enough to give you all that I have. You can have it all, Lord. Every part of my world. What are we saying? Take this life and breathe on this heart that is now yours comes when you're willing to say, Lord, here, here's, here's my trust. Here's my faith. I surrender myself to you. So we sang that song a little while ago, and we're going we're gonna to wrap up by singing it again. So can I invite you just to stand with me right where you are? Pastor John's going to lead us in that course a couple of times. Before he does, I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. And whether you're here in, in the sanctuary or whether you're watching this on a screen somewhere, Maybe a moment where God is speaking to your heart. And if you let him just become so familiar that you've let, let yourself miss out on Him being real. Man, I mean, I watched your faces today when I talked about disappointment. And for some of you, that's so real. But you may even be on the border of, of, of letting offenses in your life drive the work of jesus away what a moment this could be to say god i surrender that to you if you want to receive from him you have to believe in him and that that begins with saying god you you can have it all and so as pastor john leads us in this would you make that your simple prayer Can have it all,
1: every part of
0: my. time to think about those words let this actively be your prayer you can have it Father as we go into this week may that be our prayer may our encounters with you not not leave us empty but Lord as we approach these dangers of familiarity and disappointment and disbelief God may we allow ourselves to be in a place where we can experience life change through our relationship with you as we go from here we ask that you'd go with us Father would you send us out with your special favor